The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. See you. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome. Always a pleasure to be here with all of you. We're going to have a brief afternoon chat. Eh, maybe normal length, maybe brief. I don't know. Uh, it's just kind of a day where I have the opportunity to jump on here. I'm going to open a can of unnamed diet beverage and pour it over my ice. Be sure to hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Always a pleasure to chat with all of you. Um, good times, good times, everybody. So glad that you're here. Uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Post this on your Reddit, post this on your Facebook, post this on your Instagram, post this in a Facebook group, post this in a Twitter uh, Twitter thread, post this in a Facebook chat list, uh, email this to your friends, make it your status, um, whatever social media stuff you can do to bring people along, uh, it's good. Good thing to do. Good thing to do. Um, I'll be on here for a little bit, not too long, but a little bit I'll be on here. And uh, we'll talk about world events. Uh, the way this works is I give my opening remarks, and then from there, uh, after uh, I give my opening remarks, then we do the roll call, and then I answer your super chat questions for the rest of the show. That's how it works, is I answer your super chat questions in the second half. So if you have something you want me to talk about, there you go. There you go. Shoot me a super chat and I will write it down. That's how it works. Got the pen, got the paper, standard issue paper, standard issue pen. I'm sitting here, and so if you have something you want me to address in the second half of the show, that's when you should bring it up. Anyhow, I've got plenty of unnamed diet beverage. It is one of those days. It is wintertime in New York City, even though it has not snowed, and I am ready to talk to all of you. Opening remarks starting now. All right, folks, I'll just be real with you. Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. Turn on your TV, it's happening in Kazakhstan. There's people in the streets, there's buildings being looted, there's people rioting. Now, I hate that I have to spell this out for people. It's frustrating. Your favorite communist figures become radicalized. I hate that I have to spell this out for you, but let's look at a map, shall we? Let's just look at a map. In Ukraine, in 2014, there were a bunch of riots and instability that was celebrated by US media. What country was Ukraine aligned with at that time? Russia. And what, what has been the results for Ukraine? Since 2014, the installing of a new government, this anti-Russia, the fighting in the eastern regions, etc. Oh, and about two years ago, Belarus. Belarus, they had an election. USA didn't think the election results were legitimate. There was a bunch of rioting and instability that US media was promoting. What country was that? What country was that in? Belarus. What country is Belarus right next to? What country? Is Belarus economy largely tied in with? Well, now Kazakhstan, right? Bunch of riots that are happening. Bunch of riots that were happening that are happening. Who is the government of Kazakhstan aligned with? Russia. And what will be the results if this, this uprising against the government of Kazakhstan succeeds? 
I, I really hate having to lay this out for people. It should be common sense, but that's just how it goes, right? Countries aligned with Russia tend to have movements against corruption backed by the United States, celebrated by U.S. media in them. I mean, it's just, it's pretty basic, pretty basic stuff. And I'll, let me tell you about this, right? The protests in Kazakhstan have been going on for how long? One day, and they're already big news. Do you remember when there were protests going on in Chile for months and months and months and months against austerity? Well, I do because I'm tuned into leftist stuff, but most people don't remember when the protests in Chile were going on for months and months and months because U.S. media didn't say jack shit about it. The same for the protests in Argentina. The same for the protests in Ecuador, right? When there are uprisings against austerity and U.S.-aligned countries, no coverage. However, the day the Cuban protests started, immediately U.S. media was right out in front of it cheering it on. The day the protests have started now in Kazakhstan, they're all over it. And now we've got footage. These protesters are driving their cars into store windows. That's you know, we got a store windows, driving into cars, smashing places, looting things. And isn't it ironic that at the same time, U.S. media is going, oh, the people of Kazakhstan are standing up to this government aligned with Russia. They're standing up against this Russian-backed regime. It's glorious. And they're in the, what's happening in the United States? We're getting ready. We're getting ready to mourn January 6th when... As you recall, a number of Trump supporters got into the U.S. Capitol building and uh, trashed the place and um, ran around and acted silly. On January 6th is a horrendous atrocity. It's apparently the day we almost lost democracy. But meanwhile, you know, Kazakhstan, totally cool with the liberals, totally cool with mainstream U.S. media, the Hong Kong protesters, Totally cool with U.S. media as they trashed buildings, lit people on fire. Totally fine, right? The Venezuelan opposition as they hijack uh, airplanes and try to crash them into the Supreme Court and, and you know, attempt military overthrows. Oh, they're totally cool, right? Uh, the, uh, the, the Syrian rebels that have al-Qaeda terrorists embedded with them and kidnap people and cut their heads off. They're totally fine. I mean, it's like... It's so obvious, so obvious that um, despite the problems of Kazakhstan, which Kazakhstan obviously has problems, okay? I mean, I'm sure there's a huge amount of corruption there. I've actually, when I've been in Russia at the conferences, I was there for the World Conference of Parliamentarians, and I met some parliamentarians from Kazakhstan, and they talked about a lot of the problems they have there with corruption, et cetera. But it's like, it's pretty clear that what's happening right now in Kazakhstan is happening, one, because it's aligned with Russia, two, because the U.S. US, you know, US apparatus, the U.S. intelligence apparatus is stoking it up. That's what's going on here, right? We know there's people in Kazakhstan, um, you know, that, uh, that have issues, and we understand that. We can, we can recognize that. There are, there's problems in that country with corruption, with poverty. People are upset about the, the cost of natural gas. But at the same time, uh, do you think this protest, this, these, these, this instability, you know, do you think it just came from nowhere? Of course not. And that brings me to the January 6th thing, because I want to talk about January 6th. If you watched this stream a year ago, right, you'll see that, number one, I was not supporting the protests on January 6th, I was mad about it. I was angry at Donald Trump for what he was doing. I was angry uh, that politics had gotten so insane in the United States that it happened. But number two, I never fell into the illusion that this was a coup, right? I'm sorry, the idea that uh, some crazy rednecks running into the US Capitol building, Buffalo head with his horns on his head, the idea that that was going to lead to the overturn of the election results is ridiculous, is absolutely ridiculous. The Supreme Court was not gonna back Trump. The military was not gonna back Trump. Trump didn't even go as far as pardoning his supporters who participated in it. Trump wanted to go out with a bang. He wanted to leave office, but be remembered in a way that other presidents are not. He sent his supporters off into a trap and he sat back and he laughed. He said, I made a mess on Capitol Hill. Look at me. I caused big problems in the government. I broke a bunch of stuff. 
It was kind of Donald Trump's idea of a sick joke. And it hurt a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are really angry, really, really angry, and really, really suffering and need someone to lead them, need someone who cares about them to actually lead them, to go out and fight and resist and stand up to neoliberalism and austerity and the greedy monopolies that are demolishing the economy of the United States and focused on waging wars around the world for their profits. And yes, a lot of people were misled and put into harm's way. And yes, Donald Trump is a bastard for doing that. It's, Donald Trump is absolutely a bastard for what he did on January 6th. But was January 6th an insurrection, a coup? Is it the day we almost lost democracy? Absolutely not. It was the day that Trump supporter, the Trump supporters got used and embarrassed on national television. One of them even got killed, Ashley Babbitt. A couple others were, were killed in, in other ways. But no, it was not a coup. Um, the police let them into the building. We know there were probably FBI informers. We're still waiting to find out the details of the, um, we're still waiting to find out the details of the, uh, uh, Ashley Babbitt, um, you know, ki killing, and we're waiting to find out the details about Ray Epps, right? This mysterious Ray Epps and the Oath Keepers, and to what extent there was government infiltration. But I'm sorry. I mean, if you're buying into this liberal narrative that we almost lost democracy, uh, you are you are you are drinking the Kool Aid. And the thing is, they are going to use that narrative. To, and already have used the narrative of what happened to shut down legitimate dissent, right? They already say that if you actually question U.S. wars around the world, that, that somehow makes you a neo-Nazi, right? Jimmy Dore is a progressive comedian who stands against wars, but according to the, the January 6th cult, according to the Rachel Maddow cult, uh, he's a neo-Nazi and he needs to be outlawed. Uh, according to Caleb Kane, uh, the uh, the ex-alt-rightist of the New York Times, uh, conspiracy theories, quote-unquote conspiracy theories, need to be outlawed, outlawed on social media. They need to outlaw conspiracy theories, according to, you know, U.S. media's favorite ex-alt-rightist, Caleb Kane, Faraday Speaks, right? I mean, they're going to use this to crack down on legit dissent. And thank you for the super chat, Oleg. Thank you very much. Um and that's okay with the stupid liberals uh, that, that speak in the name of socialism because they only protest when CNN tells them to. They only protest uh, when U.S. mainstream media is behind it. You know, They only marched for Black Lives Matter when it was trendy. Back in 2010, before Black Lives Matter was trendy, I was going to court with police brutality victims, the Workers' World Party. Uh, you know, the the you know Black on Black Crime Incorporated in Cleveland, we were talking about police brutality. They weren't doing anything about it because it wasn't trendy then, right? And, uh, you know, and, you know, the same, the same for a lot of issues. But when they're trendy, when mainstream media suddenly gives them the go-ahead, these fake liberals march for it. So they're not afraid of dissent being cracked down on uh, by the aftermath of January 6th. And you know why? Because they don't dissent anyway. They don't dissent. They just go along with whatever is trendy, whatever the, the mainstream media says. So of course they they don't they are not worried about it. But if you're a legit dissident in the United States, if you are indeed worried about the evil schemes of the ruling class, you should be worried about this. Uh, you should be worried about this. Um, you know, you should be worried about suppression of civil liberties. You should be worried about this narrative of silencing dissent. This narrative, this hysteria following January 6th, you should be worried about it. You should be worried about it. Um, and if you're not worried about it, that says quite a bit about you. It says quite a bit about you. Um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way. And as, as they cheer for Kazakhstan, you know, for, you know, all this instability in Kazakhstan, destabilizing yet another country that happens to be aligned with Russia, um, we should... We should be well aware of what's going on. A um, couple other things I wanted to mention. I wanted to mention, um, one, uh, I've noticed that my book, Bread Tube Serves Imperialism, is selling quite well. Uh, it's, you know, sales have certainly increased in the last few weeks because it's now validated by the research of the Gray Zone Project. Now, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because it's a pattern that you all should be aware of. This is a pattern. This is a pattern that you all should be aware of. 
January 6th relates to this. I was not surprised by January 6th. I mean, I might have been surprised about how the events went down that day, but I wasn't surprised by January 6th. I wasn't even surprised by Charlottesville in 2017. Way back in 2008, 2009, even in 2007, when I was a mere college student, I knew what was happening. I saw all kinds of people who had been Bush supporters, supporters of George W. Bush, supporters of the the war in Iraq, supporters of torture, supporters of government wiretapping, all of a sudden become libertarians. And they would wake up. Um, They would wake up and realize that, wow, these wars are not good. Wow, the government torturing people is not good. Wow, you know, uh, maybe our leaders are dishonest. Um, You know, yes, yeah, I'm on Libri, that's true. Wow. And they were waking up to realize that everything in the United States wasn't good, that the economy had just crashed, uh, that, that, you know, that they were waking up to realize some of the problems. But they were waking up wrong. They were waking up and becoming libertarians. They were waking up and saying, we don't have real capitalism. They were waking up and, and studying Ayn Rand, studying Milton Friedman, Friedrich von Hayek, et cetera. And I went to the communists that I was working with and I said, this is a problem. There are people who are waking up and turning against the system, but they're turning against it the wrong way. They're becoming ideologically right-wing. They're becoming far-rightists. They're becoming libertarians. They're becoming becoming right-wing conspiracy theorists and anti-communists. I was right. I said this was a problem. I said it was a problem. I said it was a problem. I said it was a problem. And don't deny it. I said it was a problem. I told it to the leaders of the Workers' World Party. I told it to every leftist I could talk to. I said it was a problem, and nobody listened to me. Well, a few people listened to me, but the people the people that run the communist groups didn't listen to me. The people that, that dominate left-wing spaces didn't listen to me. All they did was say, build the movement, man. Oh, we gotta just build the movement, build the movement, build the movement. Oh, if we just build our little anti-war rallies, that's fine. We can't debate these people. Oh, we can't publish literature refuting their ideas. Uh, you know, we can't, we can't expose libertarianism for what it is. Oh no, just build the movement, man. Just build the movement, just build the movement. I was saying that this menace of right-wing anti-establishment sentiments was going to take the place of a legit working class uprising. And if we didn't take decisive action, we didn't take decisive action, if we didn't engage in ideological struggle, not building the movement, not building protests, but ideological struggle, preaching communism, preaching Marxism, preaching socialism, preaching anti-imperialism, we didn't do that, these people were going to sweep up the legit dissent. I was right. I was right. I was right. I was right. And January 6th, I saw it coming 10 years before it happened. I was screaming like a voice out in the wilderness. Um, I was screaming like a voice out in the wilderness like a voice crying out in the wilderness, and they didn't listen to me. But I was right. I was right. And then, fast forward to 2011. You remember 2011? 2011, Occupy Wall Street was happening, and people were marching. Occupy Wall Street protests were happening. And a lot of the Occupy Wall Street protesters saw the uprising against the Libyan government and said, this is a great uprising for democracy. And I said, no, it's not. I said, Gaddafi is a great anti-imperialist. I said, Gaddafi funded the Black Panthers. Gaddafi funded the Palestinians. Gaddafi armed the IRA and the Irish Republican Army. Gaddafi gave support to the ANC and the African National Congress. Gaddafi Gaddafi has always been a friend of people around the world that are fighting against imperialism. Furthermore, before 2011, back in 2010, 
I wrote a series of articles. You can look this up. I wrote a series of articles called Even CIA Statistics Show, where I documented, I quoted the CIA World Factbook showing that Libya had the highest life expectancy in the African continent due to their socialist system, the nationalization of oil and the use of oil to build up an independent economy. I, I showed that. I knew that Libya was a prosperous, anti-imperialist, socialist country, and that these protests in Libya would not lead to anything good. Now, some people also understood that, but a lot of these liberals didn't. A lot of these liberals didn't, and they didn't understand this. And they said, no, 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 we can be against both U.S. imperialism and Gaddafi. And it's not about supporting Gaddafi or supporting U.S. imperialism. It's about the people's movement. It's about transparency. It's about justice. You know, oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we don't want to condemn the revolution in Libya. Oh, oh maybe we're against the bombing, but we got to support the revolution. We got to condemn Gaddafi. And what happened? What happened? The Libyan government's been overthrown. Gaddafi was brutally murdered. And how has Libya been ever since? Did we see workers' democracy from below? Did we see a genuine uprising that was neither Western nor Eastern? No. What we saw, what we saw is a country being destroyed. Look at Libya now. It's still in absolute misery. I told you this would happen. I was right, just like I warned you about the libertarians and told you that there was going to be right-wing forces that would take the place of a legit workers' movement. I was right about Libya, and I told you what would happen in Libya. And folks, you don't know how wrong the left was on both of these issues. Let me give you yet another example. Uh, I went to a conference, an anti-war conference that year, 2011. The National Anti-War Committee had a conference. There was a Trotskyite from the ISO, the International Socialist Organization, an editor of the International Socialist Review. And he gave a whole talk about 2011, 2011. And I kid you not, this is what he said. You can probably find this talk on the internet if you dig. I haven't dug. He should be ashamed of himself. He got up, this Trotskyite got up and he talked about how great the Arab Spring was. The, the uprising in Egypt, the uprising in Tunisia, the uprising in Libya, the uprising in Syria are so great, he said. Why are they so great? Because if this had happened during the Cold War, these protests would have been co-opted by the Russian Empire. But now, because the Soviet Union is gone, the protests in Egypt and the protests in, in Syria and the protests in Libya and the protests in Tunisia are going to lead to a genuine people's uprising because the evil Russian empire, i.e. communism, isn't going to co-opt them. I kid you not, this is how these Trotskyite scum were talking back in 2011. Go look it up for yourself. That They said that the 2011 Arab Spring was going to lead to something good Show me one good thing that came out of the Arab Spring. One. Show me one good thing that came out of it. One. Show me one country that is today better off because of the Arab Spring. Show me one. One single country. Not Libya, not Syria, not Egypt, not Tunisia, right? You know, Yemen, you know, it maybe gave an impetus to the resistance, but now the Saudis are in there bombing the hell out of the place. Not Bahrain, where the Saudis invaded and brutally put down the people's uprising. Show me one single place that benefited from, you know, revolution hashtag CNN. Not one. And at the time, I was saying this was bad. I was saying that this uprising that is taking place in Libya is going to lead to disaster. I was saying that we need to be preaching communism and not going along with the mob and not going along with this liberal mo mobilization. And I was right. I was right once again. I was right about the libertarians. I was right about, uh, about the, uh, the um, Libyan situation. I was right about the Arab Spring overall. And the synthetic left was wrong again. And then what happened? What happened then? Well, do you remember back in 2020? Not that long ago, right? That's even during the pandemic. I wrote a book about Kamala Harris. Remember this? Kamala Harris and the future of America. I wrote this book about Kamala Harris, exposing Kamala Harris for what she is. 
I argued in that book that Kamala Harris is a sadistic narcissist. She takes pleasure in harming other people. It is rooted in issues related to her childhood trauma. I found out through a, an undisclosed source about her father, who she's estranged from, who she viciously hates. I had Kamala Harris's number like you wouldn't believe. And I wrote a whole book exposing the menace of Kamala Harris, the monster that Kamala Harris really is. At the time that I wrote it, there were all kinds of people that said, oh, Caleb, that's just so misogynist. Why are you attacking the first female vice president, the first black vice president? Oh, Caleb, how could, oh my God, and you're psychoanalyzing her this way. You've never met Kamala Harris. You don't know anything about her. You, you can't be writing this. You don't know anything, Caleb. I mean, you're, you're, this, is, this is a crazy thing, you know? How can you be writing this? And, and you know, shouldn't we be celebrating that a, that a woman of color got elected to be vice president and, you know, she just did what she had to do and, oh. And what happened? Kamala Harris did indeed become vice president of the United States. And what has happened? Now, she is the least popular vice president that we've had since the 1970s. Her staff is quitting left and right. And what are they saying about Kamala Harris. What are they saying about her? Are they saying that she's a sadistic narcissist? Why, yes. Yes, indeed. They are saying that she's a sadistic narcissist, that she subjects her staffers to, quote, soul-crushing criticism. Everything that I wrote in the Kamala Harris book about Kamala Harris, about her insecurity and her, her weakness and her desire to harm other people is being 100% verified. So I was also right about Kamala Harris. I was right about Kamala Harris. So check, I was right about Kamala Harris. And now uh, let's, let's go to yet another topic, BreadTube. You remember when I wrote that book about BreadTube? BreadTube, I said that BreadTube has all the hallmarks of a CIA disinformation operation. It follows the tradition of the Congress for Cultural Freedom. It follows the tradition of Project MKUltra. It's about disorienting and confusing dissident elements and people in the United States that are attracted to socialism in order to serve the status quo. I said this is basically the same thing they did with Susan Sontag, the same thing they did with Mary McCarthy, the same thing they did with Partisan Review Magazine. It's about disorienting and confusing leftist elements to make sure they don't become anti-imperialist. And so, now, the gray zone has come forward and found smoking gun proof that Abigail Thorne is on the payroll of the British royal family and British intelligence. And furthermore, that she works closely with the very same public relations firm, Valent Projects, that has worked to bring down the Syrian government. So ev everything I said about BreadTube is now validated. I saw their relationship with Steve Hassan, uh, the leading cult expert in, uh, in the United States who's tied to Robert J. Lifton, the top military psychiatrist, and who got on CNN calling for mass deprogramming of the country. And I said that BreadTube is a deprogramming operation, is an attempt to deprogram the alt-right by the ruling class. It has all the hallmarks of a CIA deprogramming, deradicalization, disinformation operation to serve imperialism. And I was right about that, too. I was absolutely right about that. Hassan Piker has come out and said that people who support Julian Assange are crazy fascists, right? Uh, they're going after Jimmy Dore. They're going after Gray Zone. I was right about that. So let's review my record. I was right. I was right about the libertarians and their danger and, and how the left was going to be usurped by these far-right elements. I was right about the Arab Spring and about Libya. I was right, absolutely right, couldn't have been more right. It was a straight shot about Kamala Harris. I was right about Kamala Harris. And furthermore, I was right about Brett too. Now that's a pretty decent record. Pretty decent record, isn't it? I think it's a little bit better than those people that were saying, thank goodness the Arab Spring is happening because the Russian empire won't co-opt it. Thank goodness, you know? Um, there you go. There you go, folks. I have a pretty darn good record 
about these things. I do not claim to have magical powers. I do not claim to have a crystal ball. I do not claim to be getting messages from divinity. I am doing none of those things. I am simply using what I understand, economics and scientific socialism, dialectical and historical materialism to figure out the way the world works. And that is why I'm able to make these predictions. Now, every so often, sure, there are things that I've gotten wrong before. We all can be wrong, right? And again, I don't have magical powers. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting a vision in my head of what's going to happen, um, right? right? That's okay, because I'm instead using reason. I'm instead using reason and what I understand about the world economy, what I understand about Marxism and historical progress, historical materialism, to make these calls. So there you go. That's what's happening. That's what is happening. So, you know, you can, you can continue to be part of this community. You can continue to listen to what I have to say. And if you do, you're going to get some insights into what's actually happening in the world. Or you can not listen to what I have to say. You can join the people attacking me. And you can be wrong over and over and over again, as they were, right? The, the forces that said that the libertarians were not a big deal, and if we just build the movement, man... Uh, we'll defeat them, and they were wrong. The right-wing opposition to capitalism did get stronger. I called it. And the forces who said that the Arab Spring was going to lead to amazing things, that it was a people's uprising from below against Gaddafi, uh, they were wrong. And the people who said that Kamala Harris, oh, Caleb can't possibly be right about that. She's just so, she's just the first woman of color. She had to do what she had to do. They were wrong, right? Even the Democrats want her out of there now. Even most of the Democrats have waked up and realized how nuts she is. They want her out of there. Those people who said, Caleb's wrong about bread tube. Bread tube couldn't possibly be supported by the government. Well, they're wrong as well. And they don't even have any response, right? They just roll their eyes and it's argumentium ad ridicule, right? Where they, they don't actually address the, the smoking gun that Kit, Kit uh, Kattenberg came up with that uh, that Max Blumenthal came up with. I mean, you know, we've got an actual document, but eh, right? Um, you know, they just go, oh, you know, they just roll their eyes, meaning that we're right. We're right. We're right, folks. We're right about BreadTube. We're right about Kamala Harris. We're right about the Arab Spring, Libya. We're right about libertarianism. Our track record is pretty darn good. Pretty darn good. Pretty darn good. So, you know, um, just wanted to make that clear. Just wanted to bring that to your attention because, um, again, your relationship with this community, um, you know, your attitude toward me in the face of the, the relentless smear campaigns against me, you know, um, should be influenced by how right I am about these things. Um, so I just wanted to, wanted to bring that to your attention. Now, there's a lot of things going on right now, right? Division. A lot of things going on right now. I'm doing a series of interviews or conversations with Harpal Brar, the leader of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist. And we've just had our second episode, uh, just went up this morning. Uh, Jyoti Brar was the moderator. Harpal Brar and I spoke about immigration. Uh, Jyoti made some very good points as well. We discussed the issue of immigration, differentiating ourselves from the mainstream left and from the right-wing bigots. It was a great conversation, a great wide-ranging conversation about immigration. The last podcast we did was about the Indian farmer strike. You can watch that on this channel. Great stuff. Really, really great conversation. 
Um, and the John Brown volunteers are currently doing amazing work in Texas. Keaton Mansfield just gave a class on, um, just gave a class on, um, right? They just gave a class on dialectical materialism. It was a really great class. You can watch it, participatory. It's great. They're doing great classes down there in San Angelo. Uh, they're doing great stuff down there. Uh, they could use your support. So if you'd like to support the work that they're doing, please, by all means, uh, send them a donation. There's a link down below. Uh, there's a PayPal link. If you can shoot me a donation, that'll support the John Brown Volunteers' work. We do need help, uh, you know, making sure they've got everything covered. They got what they need. So please, by all means, uh, you know, send us send us a donation. Link is down below in the description. Um, always appreciate it. I'll be heading to Texas in March. Looks like March 15th or so, I'll be in Texas. We're working out the details about my time in Texas, when I'll be there, what I'll be doing, et cetera. So that's, we got that also to deal with. Um, what else? What else? Um, well, there's various locals of the Center for Political Innovation forming around the country. Chicago area, they've got a local. New York area, we've got a local. Uh, Texas has a local. California has a local. We're in the process of forming a, a local in Oregon. Uh, the students and youth for a New America clubs are doing great work. They're about to start doing some great community service work, feeding people, caring for people. Um, Project 432 is in the works, a group of Christians uh, who come at this Marxism from a Christian perspective. They're in the process of gearing up to start doing some great work as well. A lot of really good things are happening. A lot of good things are happening. Because at the end of the day, folks, if I was just alone and right, it wouldn't matter. And I realize that. A lot of people on the internet, I think that's their goal. They want to be right, right? It's Olivia who wants to talk to me. All right, send me an email, calebmoppin at gmail.com or Twitter direct message. I'll talk to him, see what he has to say. Um, but uh, a lot of people just want to be wrong. Now, a lot of people just want to be right. They don't care if anything comes of it. A lot of people on the internet, they, they, they feel like if they can feel vindicated, like they are right, doesn't really matter. Well, at the end of the day, being right only matters if you are able to use your insights and knowledge to actually change the world. Philosophers have only analyzed the world. The point, however, is to change it, said Karl Marx. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to change the world. We need a government of action that will fight for working families. We need a mass movement of people to capture the anger of working people, fight for jobs, healthcare, education, all the people, all the things that people need. That's what we need right now. Um, we don't need more internet debating. Uh, we don't need more isolation and loneliness. Uh, we don't need more teenage edge lords. And honestly, you know, as much as I like to make videos on the internet, that alone is not going to change the world. That alone is not going to change the world. We need to bring millions of people in motion. And this is one thing I actually want to want to talk about this before I end my opening remarks. One fallacy that you will often hear is people will say, Oh, well, it's about building a movement. It's about building a movement. You know, you know, you guys just want to talk. You want to write books. You want to give speeches. Yeah, you know, but we actually want to build a movement. All the great movements that have happened only happened because the consciousness of the people was already there. The 1930s labor upsurge could not have happened if it hadn't been for Eugene Debs going around the country all throughout the early 20th century in a red train car, going from town to town, giving speeches, convincing people to be socialists and getting almost a million votes in the elections. And it was that class consciousness that came from Debs that laid the seeds for the fighting labor movement. The 1960s political upsurge could never have happened if it hadn't been for the Communist Party and its alliance with the black community, the work they did building the Civil Rights Congress, the work they did promoting the rights of African-Americans when it was unpopular in the 1930s, W.E.B. Du Bois. If the Communist Party had not worked really hard throughout the 1930s, throughout the 
20s laying the basis of a movement for civil rights, laying the ideological basis, there never would have been a 1960s political upsurge. Upsurges happen. Yes, they do. Upsurges happen. But they happen after the consciousness has been changed. People have to know and have some level of understanding of the class struggle, of racism, of the situation. There has to be an awakening of consciousness before there can be an awakening of action. And the problem that the labor movement has in the United States right now is that class consciousness has been largely eroded. Working people in the United States don't, don't understand that it's the ultra rich versus everybody else. People, working people in the United States don't even know, a lot of working people don't know what a union is. I've met a number of people who don't know what a labor union is. Well, that's because consciousness has been eroded. It's not because people didn't, didn't, you know, didn't just do the work and build the movements because people aren't doing what we're doing, right? We are laying the basis by raising the consciousness. If the consciousness isn't there, if people don't understand socialism, they don't understand the class struggle, then the movement that you're expecting when conditions get worse won't come. And conditions are already bad. But if a crisis emerges and the people have never heard socialism, if there's not a socialist movement educating people about Marxism, uh, then it's not gonna do any good. It's not gonna do any good. And that absolutely must be said. Absolutely must be said. So take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. But that is the reality. We are laying the basis. And the fact that a lot of communist groups have this orientation, we're going to hide that we're communists. We're going to not argue with people about Marxism. We're going to not you know, defend the legacy of the Soviet Union. We're going to let anti-communism prevail, but we're all going to work in labor union bureaucrat jobs and whisper to each other and be this secret group. Eh, not going to work. This idea that, oh, we're going to hide our communist views, but we're going to become, we're going to work in nonprofits, right? We're going to work at some LGBT nonprofit or some immigrant rights nonprofit and secretly be communists and, and, and eh, not going to work if the consciousness is not there. The consciousness is not there. And if these bourgeois institutions like NGOs, like the labor bureaucracy that's tied in with the Democrats, if they're the ones setting the ideology, right? If they're the ones that, that are teaching the workers, you know, what to think, uh, you're not gonna see the upsurge. It's not gonna happen. So these are the facts, folks. Wrote it down. Here's the facts. Take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. Um, I just wanted to share that with you tonight in my opening remarks. So now we'll do the roll call. Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Kendall from San Diego, California. Elias from Finland. Dylan in California. Chaya from Montreal. Chris Morlock in San Francisco. Joey from Belize. Corona, Space Communist, Australia, Don D in NYC, right? Uh, uh, Pence, uh, Pepper, Pennsylvania, Istanbul, Micah from Las Vegas, Antoine from France, Bob Troy from New York, uh, Arturo from Alaska, Quinn and Meredith in Washington State, Christian in Northern New Jersey, shout out to you, Christian, Giles in Cincinnati, Portugal, Joseph in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, I'm in KCMO. Paris of the Plains, got it. Kieran from San Diego, Libya, John in Houston, Sean Ramsey from Finland, Mo in Toronto, Canada, Sweden, Danny from Boston, uh, Ben in Suffolk, Caleb, hello Caleb, Mark from California, Toti in Melbourne, Tristan in Maryland, JT24 in Mississippi, Ben in Denver, Lily in Atlanta, Bermuda, Maximilo from Fresno, California, Cincinnati, Ohio, Birmingham, Alabama, Boulder, Nigeria, Tranquility, New York, Rochester, North New Jersey, Scotland, Kalamazoo, 
Mike in Miami, shout out to you, Mike. And I think you can be a moderator. You are a moderator, Mike. Welcome. You're a beloved member of this community. Mosin from Iran, Temple City, Quebec, Terre Haute, Cleveland Pirate Alex, Caleb currently in Las Vegas. Wow, exciting stuff. Gabby from Chicago, shout out to you, Gabby. Max the Sax, Lillian Atlanta, Ben in Chicago, Chicago, Illinois, uh, Steve in Snowy, Michigan. Austin, Texas, much love. Mark from California again. Winesburg, Ohio. Oh boy, oh boy, are you there with uh, uh, Winesburg, Ohio? That was the novel written by, who wrote it? Who wrote uh, Sherwood Anderson, right? You and Sherwood Anderson are hanging out there in Winesburg, Ohio. Um, He read it, The Moon in the House. I don't know what that means. Sam in Chicago. Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, Hugo from the Netherlands, uh, Meredith Anderson, uh, Tucson, Arizona, Clarence from Utah, Cambridge, very, very good. Very, uh, very good. All right. Okay. How did your favorite communist figures become radicalized? Interesting. Well... Um, William Z. Foster became radicalized because one day he was walking down the streets and there was a guy on a soapbox preaching about socialism. And William Z. Foster stopped and listened to the guy preaching about socialism and argued with him. And the guy preaching was a member of the Socialist Labor Party, the SLP. And because he heard that soapbox agitator, that's how he became a communist. Right? Now, Another question, some other historical figures we can think of. Uh, how did, uh, did W.E.B. Du Bois become a communist? Well, W.E.B. Du Bois became a communist because he was fighting for the rights of African Americans. Um, you know, he, he went to Harvard University, I believe. He was a very well-educated person, uh, and he was fighting for the rights of his people, and he got involved with the NAACP when it was starting, and many of the members of the NAACP when it started were part of the Socialist Party, so he was involved with the Socialist Party. And then, um, during the 1920s and 30s, he saw that the Communist Party took up the cause of black rights more than anyone else, so he got more interested, and ultimately, before he left the country in 1960, W.E.B. Du Bois formally joined the Communist Party. Um, There you go. Um, I'm trying to think, who else? Who else? Um, Who else uh, could we talk about? How did they become radicalized? Um, You know, uh, Sam Marcy, the founder of the Workers' World Party, he became a communist because he was from Russia. And uh, the Red Army saved his village uh, from the White Army and rescued his family. And then when he came to the United States, he was in Brooklyn, and the Communist Party organized in his neighborhood. Uh, and so he, he became involved with the Communist Party. Um, who else? Um, what other figures can we talk about? I mean, there's a number of figures uh, that we can talk about. It's generally through people being in the struggle. Um, so there you go. Generally through people being in the struggle. Uh, it's generally through people being out there and preaching socialism. It's generally through these kind of things that people become radicalized. So there you go. Mal on self-criticism. Well, that's an important thing. It's important to recognize one's own errors. Um, people get into this trap of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, uh, you know, especially these communist groups that have been around a long time, they have like one thing they can do well. And so they just kind of keep doing that one trick that they can do well. They're one trick ponies. And they never come back and go, what could we have done better? And they just kind of keep repeating the same mistakes. Self-criticism is a way that you can make communist work more effective by, they call it summing up, summing up uh, your campaigns. What did we get out of this? What did we do right? What did we do wrong? Um, That's one thing uh, that um, I think people can do. Um, as far as my own self, and I know that was like, that was two other questions. What did I get wrong? Um, what did I get wrong? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, I knew something was wrong with the movementist trend of the Workers' World Party, but I still repeated, we need to be in the streets, we need to struggle. I, I still held on to this illusion that if people went out and protested, 
that that was going to solve the problems. And I had it in my mind, well, they need to protest under the leadership of the Workers' World Party, which is a communist group. But even that was not the correct approach, right? Um, I think that's one thing. I think I stayed in the Workers' World Party too long, right? If I had started this YouTube channel, started doing these streams earlier, uh, I think uh, that that would have been more beneficial, right? If I if I had uh, if I had started engaging in independent ideological work sooner, uh, if I had just you know said goodbye to the Workers' World Party a couple of years before I did, and just focused on getting out my own message sooner, I probably could have had more success. Um, but you know, you hold on to your loyalties, and that's one thing. Is I'm a very loyal person, right? If I am committed to a political ally or a person, I don't give them up easily. Right. And, you know, I, I think that's a winning attribute as well. You know, you don't throw a friend under the bus. You don't throw an ally under the bus. Right. If you've entered an alliance with somebody. Right. If you are you are working in, in collaboration with somebody, you don't jump ship the second things don't work out. Right. That there is something to be said for digging in for the long haul. Um, and so I was willing, you know, I mean, even at the time that my relationship with the Workers' World Party was coming to an end, I was willing to continue to try to be on good terms with them at least. I tried. Trust me, I tried. Um, how do you explain the difference between a communist and a socialist to a random stranger? Ah. So there you go. In fact, I'm going to answer that one right now because we were just talking about Sherwood Anderson. And Sherwood Anderson... He said, he often gets asked, what's the difference between a socialist and a communist? And he said he didn't know the technical difference, but it seems like the communists are the ones who mean it. I've always liked that. The communists are the ones who mean it. That's what Sherwood Anderson said. And I've used that before in speeches and stuff um, because I think that that's a good way of explaining it. But when it really gets down to it, right, again, these words are kind of fluid. You have to remember with the first international, when Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto and started the, you know, the International Working Men's Association, um, he did it because of the fact, you know, he called it the Communist Manifesto because the vague idea of socialism uh, was everywhere. So he said, use the word communist to distinguish his scientific brand of socialism. But then the word communist got associated with a bunch of, <coughs> excuse me, got associated with a bunch of uh, ultra-left anarchists and extremists. And so when they started the second international that was supposed to be serious organizers and not crazy extremists that were engaging in ultra-left adventurism, they called it the Socialist International. And they called themselves Social Democrats or, or Socialists to distinguish from the crazy anarchists that were going around uh, you know, bombing stuff and, and, and et cetera. They wanted to distinguish it. But then when the Social Democrats sold out and supported World War I, um, um, all right. Uh, the Social Democrats uh, sold out and supported World War I. In his April thesis, Vladimir Lenin told the Bolsheviks to refer to themselves as communists, uh, to distinguish themselves from the Social Democrats who sold out the revolution. So these terms are interchangeable. Nowadays in U.S. society, People tend to associate the word communist with governments, with the Soviet Union, with China, with Cuba. And the word socialist tends to be associated with liberals, people who just want free health care and such. Um, but it, it's a strategic use of the term, right? The terms have interchangeably referred to the same movements. And there are often people who call themselves communists that are ultra-left extremists I want nothing to do with. And there are people that are socialists who I don't really, in fact, I would say the majority of people in the USA who call themselves socialists don't really believe in you know, public control of the means of production and abolishing capitalism. They just want a bigger welfare state. So you know, these terms have different meaning to different people in different contexts. All right. Um, all right. Um, Libri, yes, L-B-R-Y. Uh, my videos are up there. They, they get uploaded to there. You can watch me on Libri. And uh, I will be on Rockfin soon. Details of my Rockfin transfer are being worked out currently. All right. Um, does liberalism grow the class antagonism? Yes, because liberals don't want to actually address the reality. Right, um, they they want to defend the status quo, and the status quo is what people are angry at. Um, so you know, the liberals by defending the status quo tend to make the problems worse. 
critique of LTV, uh, labor theory of value. Um, I mean, okay, labor theory of value. All right. Okay. Um, 2011 saw anti-imperialist labeled agents of Venezuela and such. Yeah, yeah, 2011 was a turning point. That was a full-on embracing of the color revolution aesthetics by the imperialists. And the results are still horrendous. The Hillary Clinton State Department did horrendous damage. The liberal CIA did horrendous damage. All right. Division over globalization is the problem. Well, there's a division in the ruling class about how to carry out globalization, I think. Um, you know, there's there's factions that have different models for how U.S. imperialism can dominate the world. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, I mean, the big corporations all want to dominate the planet. Every capitalist wishes he was an imperialist, whether he is one or not. They all want to export their profits all over the planet and make super profits. So there you go. Um, I already told you what I got wrong. Um, how do you prevent capitalism from reemerging? Well, that's... That's the question of the dictatorship of the proletariat, right? A new state apparatus needs to be created. Uh, you need to create a new state. And you need to control the bureaucracy, right? The bureaucracy is a danger because the bureaucracy could betray the revolution, right? And how do you control the bureaucracy? And, you know, Stalin and Mao tried to control the bureaucracy. Stalin with, you know, police state stuff and Mao with, you know, the Cultural Revolution. But ultimately, they've discovered that it's better, it's more effective to control the bureaucracy by creating a market sector. Um, you know, and that control of the bureaucracy is one of the main problems socialist countries have because you're going to have to have a bureaucracy. You have a group of people uh, who are... Who are, you know, if you're rationing food, um, you know, you're gonna have to have a line for people to wait in to get their food ration. And then there's gonna have to be a guard who guards the line to make sure that, you know, that not, you know, you know, somebody doesn't take somebody else's food. But that guard is gonna want a bigger slice of bread than everybody else because he's taking on the responsibility of being a guard. And that's the basis of bureaucracy. Now, how do you prevent that guard who's getting a bigger slice of bread from just restoring capitalism and becoming a capitalist? Well, you have to control him. And how do you control him? That is the question, right? Stalin had his method of controlling him. Mao had his method. Um, and the methods of Stalin and Mao did not prove very effective, right? They worked for a generation. But after that, um, they were undone, right? Um, you know, so how do you control the bureaucracy? Well, you know, a market sector is a way of controlling the bureaucracy. Make it so people don't go into the bureaucracy to get rich, right? Make it so that people who want to get rich can go into the private sector. That the bureaucracy is only for people who believe in communism. It doesn't become the only vehicle through which people can advance their own incomes. Uh, have a party maximum. I know there was a party maximum in the Soviet Union. That was one thing that was done. The other thing is make sure there's ideology everywhere. Ideological work is super important. You need to spread the ideology, right? Um, the other thing is have vibrant debate in the society. That was one of the weaknesses of the Soviet Union. By not having vibrant debate, by, uh, by, by suppressing the opposition and not mobilizing the public to refute the, the arguments of the, of the anti-communists, uh, they, weakened, they weakened the whole country politically, right? And, you know, you have to have vibrant debate. You have to teach people Marxism and, and mobilize them to go out and argue with the right wing. That's one thing. A good friend of mine, he said, in China, that's what happens now. That uh, it used to be if you went to China and talked against the government, people would just get nervous. But now you go to China, if someone, you know, someone, you know, saying negative things about Xi Jinping, everyone in the restaurant will get up and say, no, that's not how you talk about Xi Jinping. He's our leader and communism is true. And that's that's what they do in Cuba too, right? You know, in the Soviet Union, you know, for the most part, they just ignored opposition. And then if it got to a certain point, they they violently suppressed it. But now in Cuba, uh, they mobilize the public to debate these people. Um, and, uh, and that's a much more effective way of doing things. That's what they're doing now in China too. The people are debating these opposition and that's politically mobilizing. You know, when, when your people are locked out of politics, that's a setup for disaster. Um, critiques of the labor theory of value. Well, look, Peter Kropotkin, the anarchist, and a lot of people will argue that the labor theory of value is incorrect, they argue. Um, because they say, look, how do you determine what something's really worth, right? I mean, you know, you know, Marx said that, that labor and nature are the source of all wealth. And some people says, well, how do you really know that? How do you determine what something is really worth, right? Well, the labor theory of value is surplus value. It shows that the percentage that the worker puts into the product is not getting paid to him. The worker does not get paid 
the mathematical percentage of the cost of his work, right? That the way the capitalist makes profits is through extracting surplus value. So the issue here, we're not having a vague conversation about how do you know what something's really worth? And maybe the gold was still worth the same amount when it was in the ground. And maybe the, the gold miner, by digging it out of the ground, made it less valuable because the what he did to the environment. And the, this, this is all a distraction. The labor theory of value, surplus value, is simply about the fact that what the worker puts in, he doesn't get out. The worker never gets out the value that he puts into the product, right? Or else the capitalist would have no way to make profits, right? If you add up all the costs that go into the final cost that the consumer pays for the product, the labor costs are never fully compensated for. The worker has never paid the value of his work. That's the point of the labor theory of value. But yes, when people say, how do you know what something's really worth? And is the cost the worker pays work really how much it's worth, right? There are things in life that are very valuable to me that I've paid very little money for. And there are things in life that I don't particularly care for that I've ended up having to pay lots of money for. And that, you know, that, that, you know, that the expression, you get what you paid for is not always true. Not always true. Sometimes the best things in life can be free, and sometimes things that are crappy can be super expensive. Um, you know, so you know the labor theory of value is more about the fact the worker doesn't get paid the value of his of his of his labor. That's the point, right? You cannot prove in a in a philosophical sense the true value of anything, right? Um, so there you go. All right, um, and on that note, folks. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists, people of all countries must be prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists, the people of all countries must get prepared. Revolution is the main trend in the world today.